I'm your host, Lauren McCaffrey, and today we're doing another episode of Lauren's Porn. Yeah, I hear it. But we are in a second special place. Today we're recording from Highbrow Tap House in Greeley, uh, which I was introduced to by a regular when I was serving in um, Wiley Brewing Company's tap room, and he pitched it to me uh, because I was excited about different craft beer research and such, and uh, he's like, well, you know, we should really go to Highbrow. They have temperature-controlled cooler that's by style, and they know what they're talking about, and they have good glassware. So with me today is Ben from Highbrow. Hello there. <laughs> I'm so glad you guys had this idea and followed through. I I wish there were more places that would do temperature control. And it's kind of sad to me that I've never been to a brewery that's done it. Well, the whole idea was to try to unbrainwash people from um, drinking craft beers the way they drink big American domestics. Um, because now the big craft beer scene in America has been taken off like crazy, but people are still preconditioned to drink everything like it's domestics. You know, so you go to a lot of breweries and you get something that's won a ton of awards and accolades, very popular, very famous, and here it is 30 degrees out of a shaker pint. So we're like, there's so much more you could do to really uh, <coughs> bring up and showcase all of the intricacies of Colorado craft beer that really is not done by the big American beer market and uh, the public in general when it comes to bars and tap rooms. So we thought, what if we could take it to the next level and uh, get all this amazing beer that we handpick from all over the state and really bring it up to its full potential and do everything we can as servers to really give it to the customer at 100% of the possibility that it can be served at. Which is a lot of what we see in like the wine industry where they put all of that care into the customer experience where you know you have those different wine glasses and everything's poured with so much finesse and it's not always done with beer you see a lot of it in belgium uh, a little bit less so in germany and the czech republic but belgium is really a place to go where every single beer has its own specialty glassware that has been designed and tweaked over the centuries to uh, just be the perfect vessel to uh, showcase and portray that drink and uh, we just think that's so cool um, and you know it really does make a big difference the type of glass that it comes in and the temperature it comes in and that's one of the best parts of running a place like this is we can really show people and uh, see the look on their face when we serve them you know the same thing side by side and you know in two different glasses or two different temperatures and they're like oh that's the same thing it tastes completely different you're like and yes exactly <laughs> and that's why we do it we, well, speaking of temperature, we should probably get into um, our flight today. So we're going to talk about a few of the beers that are on tap uh, that we're excited about. Uh, all, I, I forgot to mention, yeah, it's all Colorado local breweries and uh, small, smaller breweries. And Ben, I know you do all the purchasing for that, so this is really... <laughs> it's, it's a passion, a labor of love for sure. Um, I feel so blessed to be a part of the Colorado craft beverage industry. I just feel like we've got so much fun sto stuff going on here, and above all, it's one of the most open and friendly and collaborative industries I've ever had the pleasure to be a part of. You know, competition is really not about 
brewery versus brewery, it does come down to more beer versus beer. Um, and I think everyone out here, you know, has something to bring to the table and something new and exciting or just even a reinterpretation of a classic style uh, that really puts it back on the map and on a lot of drinkers' radar. And because of that, we just have amazing variety and everywhere you go, you just have fantastic choices. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I feel so blessed to be in an area where it is booming and people care and it's collaborative and it's friendly. It is, uh, and that's that's really kind of how I envision uh, the Colorado craft beer industry is really just a, a guy with a trucker hat and a beer just going, this is amazing, everybody has to try it. Um, and uh, we actually had a, uh, a customer come in when we first opened who uh, used to be a, a uh, marketing manager in uh, California, and they're you know, like, you know, we could maybe help you and say, how do we get people here instead of to the other breweries in town? And I said, well, I have to stop you right there. The question is not, how do we get people here instead of these other breweries? How do we get them here before or after they go to these other breweries? Because it's really more about taking the tour and seeing what everything has to offer and really appreciating everybody for its specialties that makes this scene just so amazing and uh, inclusive. I absolutely agree. 100%. And this first one uh, we should probably start with is, is the beer stat. Uh, slow pour pills. I know this is special because not everybody gets to have a keg <laughs> from Bierstadt. They are very specific. Yep, they are uh, definitely pretty persnickety when it comes to their beer, but justifiably so. Um, they have won all kinds of crazy awards and they're really, really doing uh, good stuff through traditional methods and bringing, you know, the best of beer, beer culture in Europe directly to Denver. Um, but yeah, we're, we're pretty proud to have this one. In fact, it is the only uh, item on our draft list that we do not rotate. Uh, we keep it on 100% of the time because we had to jump through a lot of hoops to get it. We had to get trained on how to pour it properly, tour the brewery, learn the history of everything. We can only put it in the uh, specialty glassware that they give us. And uh, we're, as far as I know, the only ones north of uh, Boulder currently pouring it. I may be wrong because there are a lot of places in Fort Collins and such that chain up their tap list quite a bit. Um, but we're very proud to carry it, and all that is worth it because uh, it did just get ranked uh, the number one lager in North America by Travelist Magazine. I didn't know ago. that. Yeah, so it's, it's uh, widely acknowledged as one of the top German-style lagers coming out of America, and we sell a ton of it to industry people. Um, you know, everyone that's been in the beer industry, they recognize this little poor pilsner right away, and they go, ooh, I want that. Um, so we love to carry it. It's one of our top sellers. It's one of the most awarded beers that we've had the privilege to carry and uh, cheers to those guys for sure. Oh man, Prost. absolutely. Prost. Yeah. Something this I found recently is you want to be careful about tapping the table where you go. Uh, we always do it here because it's a cheers to the bar, to the host, but that's a very English thing. If you go to Germany I didn't know that. <laughs> and you tap the table with your glass, it means bottoms up. So it like, means you're going to finish whatever is in your glass. So if you mm. get a fresh liter mug, and you tap it, everyone will be like, oh, bet, and watch to see you slam it. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I started doing that with shots. So mm -hmm. that was... <laughs> yeah, well, that, with that, you're but... finishing it in a single drink, but I just think it's a, you know, if, if you get into that habit as an American and you go over to Germany and you do it with a liter shine, everyone's going to just be like, okay, go for it. We're waiting. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's definitely my habit is always to tap. Mm -hmm. And if I remember right, um, 
I drank with a couple Japanese exchange students and never, never tap. No. No. Yeah, no, that's taboo. <laughs> but this that's is so, oh, so light and crisp and clear with good head retention and... And I'm glad people really have been appreciating it because when some of the more lay beer drinkers come in and they hear that, you know, it's the bee's knees and it's won all these awards, they expect to get their socks knocked off. And it's not about being, you know, super new and exciting and innovative. It is one of the most difficult and uh, rule-laden beer styles in existence. So it is just the most pilsnery pilsner. It is just so. And that's what makes it so amazing. That's what wins at all the awards. Yeah, definitely. And I know Ashley, but her last name's Carter, right? She's the head brewer there. I know she is cutthroat to the letter. We do this. We do, I know they do like a step mash. They don't, you know, modernize. Yep. And they also lager uh, much longer than pretty much anyone else that I've been familiar with. It takes them 45 days. That's, yeah, that's what I heard. Pilsner. So there have been a few times where we're on our last keg and we'll hit them up and be like, hey, we're, we're getting ready for some more slow pour. And they'll be like, oh, it's going to be like two or three weeks. So we'll put a keg of their Hellas on in the meantime, and that does really well in its own right, of course. Um, I love their Hellas, too. <laughs> yep, and we have the specialty mugs for that as well. And, and it's just funny because we have these, um, they're a half liter, but it comes out to about 18 ounces. Uh, and we were like, oh, we have these mugs already. Can't we just put the slow pour in here and serve it by the mug like we do with all our other beers? And Bill, the owner, said, absolutely not. How dare you even suggest it? <laughs> so we have the Hellas mugs that is exclusively for Hellas, and the slow pour glasses specifically for slow pour, and never the twain shell meat. Yeah. Yeah, I've noticed, um, yeah, always the glasses for them, mm-hmm. wherever it's poured. Mm-hmm. But it's also one of their, their, they've they've done a great job uh, marketing and branding themselves down there, really like 1920s Art Deco feel. Yeah, it's really fun. Really classy with the black and gold, and people always just see that, and they're like, oh, that looks super cool, I want one of those. And then you do it with a little traditional German-style coaster doily, and you make sure to get the foam just right, so that it raises like a little mountain above the glass. And takes takes time. (laughs) Yep. And uh, it's it's a lot of fun, and it definitely has that fajita effect, where we'll give it out to one customer, and a bunch of other people see it, and they go, oh, that looks good, give me one too. And it's it's super easy for people, maybe, who haven't seen the craft beer industry, gotten in yet, this is approachable mm-hmm. for, the, for those who have been drinking. You know, a lot of the macro beers, they're Pilsner-esque. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they, they derive from, from the Chuck Pilsner, certainly, but um, they they diverted pretty significantly during World War II, not of their own accord, but because of the grain rationing going on, um, switching to using rice as the main base. Um, and yeah, after uh, the war, the, ra- the rationing ended, they still chose to keep doing it that way, not because it was um, uh, cheaper or anything like that, but because they had already switched all of their um, mechanical all of their systems over to be using it so it's more of a pain to switch back than to keep using that but yeah of course banquet that's the original pre-world war ii course uh with colorado barley so that's the original course up until that great rationing took place uh, after pearl harbor yeah and i and i know that's something that's repeated throughout history definitely in germany 
and Belgium. I haven't looked as much through England to see when the grain ration happened for them, but it's always during a war. Mm -hmm. Always. Yeah, and you see it everywhere. I mean, even over in, in Japan, um, they grow a special grade of rice just to make sake. And uh, I was curious, and I'm doing a little sake tasting course, and I was like, well, can you make sake from regular rice? And they said, yes, but you wouldn't. It's like the super <laughs> cheap version. They're like, yeah, it hasn't been done in bulk since wartime. But that's like during wartime, you're, you're not growing any sake grade rice, you're growing all food grade rice, and you just have to make do. So, I see a little bit of that everywhere you go, I think. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Oh, and I love the, the like, Belgian lace on the glass. Mm -hmm. I've always been told that is a sign of properly brewed beer. Yep, and that's the one of the reasons they want us to uh, have the foam holes above the rim of the glasses is a nod to uh, traditional beer brewing times before forced carbonation, where the only way that you would get bubbles in your beer was from the process of the yeast turning sugars into alcohol. So if the beer had foam, you knew it was a proper beer, that it had alcohol in it, that it could get you drunk. So when you look over and he's someone with a big mug and all the foam is like stuck in their beer, they're like, oh, that's a great symbol. That's what I want. And uh, essentially that's uh, how it spread. Yeah, I actually, I had a customer come up to me one time. I don't know if she just had never noticed it before because she was a regular and she always ordered the same beers. But she was like, what, what is wrong with my glass? Why does why does it look like this? Why is the foam clinging to the sides? And I was like, no, 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 it's okay, it's okay. Like, this is, it's Belgian lace. It's a good thing. You want this. And she was like, uh, okay. <laughs> I hope she looked it up after that. I really do. <laughs> Which one are we feeling next? Um, probably this 27, the cause for fun. Oh, this Imperial Saison Dry Hop with Nelson Sauvin from OCC Brewing in Colorado Springs. A fairly new brewery. Uh, we actually were pleased to be the first ones to carry them, and it's kind of a funny story how we actually got a hold of this beer. Um, I was down there with one of our customers, and I love to have a wingman when I go brewery hopping, so I try not to go by myself. And we were told by some of the other breweries down in Colorado Springs that we needed to check out this new place that had been open less than a week in old Colorado City, hence the OCC. So we went over and we met uh, the owner, Dan, super cool guy, and we were really impressed that for being open less than a week, they had almost 20 beers of their own. What? All very advanced styles, all really good quality. So I was impressed with everything I had there, and I introduced myself to the owner, and I was drinking this Imperial Saison, which I kind of felt was custom-made specifically for me. Because I love all beers, you know, I, I, I can find value in basically any style. Um, but I've always been partial to the Belgians, and I love Imperial Saisons. And uh, getting into more of the IPA scene and the hop beers, I am not a huge fan of a lot of the really sharp hops. I like the more mellow ones, so I've taken quite a sheen to the New Zealand hops. Uh, Nelson Sauvin, Matueka, Riwaka. Um, and this was dry hop with Nelson Sauvin, which I could say arguably is my favorite hop. So they took one of my favorite beer styles, dry hopped it with my favorite hop. I was like, oh, this <laughs> is really good. And I expressed this to the owner, and he's like, oh, yeah, well, our, our head brewer actually apprenticed at Brasserie Fantome in Belgium. Whoa. And uh, so that's why we're, you know, really good right out of the gate, because we have a lot of experience. We know what we're doing. And I asked if he was going to uh, be selling kegs out of house anytime soon. And he said, you know, we're, we're brand new. We're going to probably take six months you know, to get our legs underneath us and be ready to sell out a house. And I was like, that's a shame because I'd really like to carry this cause for pause. 
And he said, wait, you want that one? Hold on a second. And he went and he got the head brewer and he brought him out from the back. And he said, this guy owns a beer bar in Greeley and he really wants to carry the cost for pause. Well, this head brewer teared up. He was like, you want that one? That's my baby. That's the first recipe I ever made and I've been tweaking it all my life and I'm super proud of it, but it just gets ignored because everyone wants the IPAs and the fruited wheats. Uh, so nobody really seems to appreciate it. And I was like, this is really good. This is one of the better beers I've had in recent memory. I would love to have this at my tap house. And he was like, okay, you can have one keg. Oh. So just because I, I wanted the correct one actually set us up to uh, be able to serve it here at the tap house. And uh, so well, one of the two first beers that I came back with myself from Colorado Springs, it was my first brewery trip down there uh, back in December. Uh, but now that we've brought on a part-time bartender, I've been able to expand my radius a little bit, get to the western slope, get to southern Colorado, um, get over to Durango, way in the uh, oh, geez. southwest. All the way to Durango. Yep. Um, so I really want to hit all the little places in Colorado. And uh, the issue for me so far is getting to these little remote mountain, town, mountain towns and uh, towns uh, way out on the west side of the state. So hopefully I'll be able to get more of that stuff and bring it back here to Greeley. Yeah, geez. Uh, did you get ska from Durango? Is that what it was? So we already do carry ska and Steamworks. Um, they're they're distributed here, so we get them delivered to us. But I did have the privilege of going and seeing their locations for the first time, which was absolutely amazing. They're both super, super cool places. Really good food at their restaurants. Highly recommended. Um, we did also go to a couple of the smaller guys that we don't um, already receive delivery from. Uh, unfortunately, I struck out a lot of those places. They're like, oh, we're really small. You know, we don't really do anything out of house. And if it is, it's to the restaurant across the street. Mm -hmm. um, so I can follow up with them again and see if maybe we get some of their stuff in the future. But uh, regardless, it was a, a great time. I really enjoyed um, Animus River Brewing specifically. Uh, they had some excellent beer and they had uh, pasties as their main food option, which I had not seen since I moved away from the Midwest. So if you want some... Uh, beef stew in a calzone shell that's a great place to go Whoa! and they also had uh, dirt cups as one what of their dessert it? options so we had to oh, throw wait. back to elementary school and do the <laughs> chocolate pudding with the crushed Oreos and the gummy worms, and the gummy worms. <laughs> it took me a minute I was like do you mean yeah the elementary school dessert <laughs> yeah I mean, so hey four dollars at a craft beer bar nothing wrong with that yeah no kidding but for those who don't know, uh, so we're at the north end of the state. Durango's at the south end of the state. It is a it is a trek. Uh, bus ride there, last time I went, was eight hours. <laughs> I mean, bus, slow, but... Yeah, we did a trip through the southern part of the state up over there, which was kind of nice, a big square. We left Longmont down to, uh, we spent the first night in uh, Poncha Springs and Salida, and that was really nice down there, and then we cut down the next day through Pagosa Springs uh, into Durango, spent the second night in Durango, and then the third day came up Red Mountain Pass through Uray, and spent the last night in Grand Junction, and uh, Grand Junction was so much fun, I felt like we really came into our own there. We struck out a lot in the tiny little touristy mountain towns on the way there where people are like, you want what? And I said, like, kegs of beer. And they're like, yeah, we don't do that. If our head <laughs> brewer got hit by a bus tomorrow, we would just cease to be a brewery. 
So I was <laughs> like, okay, you know, no worries. And then I got to Grand Junction, and everywhere in Grand Junction was like, oh, you want beer? Sure, pick out something. We'll help you get it loaded up. And I was like, these are my people. <laughs> so now I kind of know for future reference if I'm getting beer from the Western Slope that it's uh, most efficient to just create cut straight across 70, hit Palisade, mm-hmm. hit Grand Junction, maybe a little of the stuff around there, and then come back. Because aside from the, the big breweries that already distribute beer to the front range, there's not a whole lot of stuff going on over there. Uh, that's not to say that uh, you shouldn't go visit. They just uh, don't let uh, their kegs go to out-of-house accounts, which is understandable for a lot of these really small microbreweries. They're just doing their own little thing in their neighborhood. Yeah, because, I mean, like, a, an investment in a keg uh, is more than you would guess for the layman. Like, it, it, we, we put... If a brewery lets the kegs go to a private party, I'm saying, like, somebody at somebody's house, you usually put a deposit on that, and you have their credit card, so if they don't return it, then you charge them the amount of the keg. It is, it is serious business with those. And having, you know, let's, let's assume they had, I don't know, 20 or something. They lose one that's... We were talking 15 pounds of aluminum. So yeah, yeah. Just in scrap value alone, it's about the keg deposit. Um, but, yeah, you ever want to do that, and that's been fine for us because we've been able to, um, you know, make contact with a lot of places in an area so we can set up, like, a whole day trip to go in one day, and then we'll drop off, you know, checks for invoices and empty kegs everywhere we go. And that's been our in with a lot of the other small breweries, too, is they're like, oh, we don't deliver to Greeley. I'm like, yeah, I know, but I'm picking up beer from your neighbor two blocks away. I'd love to grab something from you, too, when I'm in the area. And uh, some people have been burdened in the past, and they're like, mm-hmm. you know, we just don't do that anymore, which I understand. Um, especially during COVID, a lot of places closed and went bankrupt, and the bank seized the assets. And unfortunately, that meant they also seized the kegs, even though they were not property of the bars or the restaurants that they were currently in. Um, so we lost out. And there's Yikes. a few breweries in the past that I know that have been really directly impacted like that. And again, it's been just a blessing to see the craft beer industry come together and a lot of the other breweries in the area will donate stuff to make up for that. You know, they'll, they'll give them kegs and stuff like that to make up for the loss. I had no idea that when they seized a bar, they were seizing the kegs whether they were theirs or not. Yep. What in the world? They'll basically close the business and say everything on oh. the property just belongs to the bank to recoup their losses. Um, yeah, it's real unfortunate, especially when it's like big restaurants that close that have a ton of kegs. Oh. So the Craftworks uh, closure was definitely a bad one where all of the old Chicago's and Rock Bottoms um, ceased production. And they did uh, have their own beer, but they also had a ton of guest taps from local breweries, and a lot of those people weren't able to get their kegs back. Oh my gosh. Or, in worst case scenario, they have to go and buy them at auction from the bank. So. I mean, I know that our production manager panics every time we send kegs out of state. Where he's kind of like, we're not going to see those for five years. And we don't, he's like, I don't know if we'll have enough kegs, you know, if we keep sending them out. (laughs) Are they going to come back and in time? Yeah, that's kind of the balancing act for the mid-sized breweries. Um, the super huge ones, they give away a ton of swag and the tap handles and everything, and they're more worried about getting the kegs back. And by comparison, the smaller breweries uh, typically don't really charge keg deposits because they have real small distribution and they know where all of their kegs are because they only have a dozen out at any one time. But the tap handles,
bills or what they lock deposits on because oh, really? like, these are custom made by one of our customers who has like a wood engraver or something like that. We only have you know ten of them, and so that's been nice for us to also not use tap handles as we were able to allay a lot of those concerns. And we're like, hey, don't worry about giving us this like three D printed tap handle that costs you like seventy fu- seventy five bucks to custom order. Yeah. So, so people like that too and. We like uniformity, and a lot of the smaller breweries that we get from don't have tap handles. So we'd like it where either we have one through 30 all with tap handles or none with tap handles. And so it's much more realistic to just use our own little black ones and have it be nice and clean looking and then not worry about having to run logistics on all of these tap handles that are very dear to uh, these brewery owners. Yeah, I mean... In a place like this, I'm staring straight at the menu uh, anyways, because I want all of the details. Whereas, like, you know, if I'm going to a big, you know, chain place restaurant, then I'm looking at the tap handles because they don't always print out their beer menus if it's craft beer. Mm -hmm. And I have to, like, you know, poke around and, like, lean around the bar and walk back and forth to try and figure out, like... What do they what do they have from that brewery? Like I know that tap handle, but like which one is it, you know? Especially when like half the staff have them like turned one way or another and this just looks classier the way you guys have it with just straight black. When we first opened, <laughs> we inherited a box of leftover tap handles and we've uh, returned most of them to their rightful owners. We have a couple from places that no longer exist. Um, but we did have one of the first generation Wiley Roots ones. What? That was like hand, <laughs> hand engraved with like the, the wood burner. And uh, about six months after we opened, I took it over to Wiley Roots just when I was getting familiar with all of the industry people here in Greeley. And I brought it to him and I was like, hey, is this worth a beer? And the manager took it and looked at it and said, it was worth two beers. And I said, I'll take it. Yeah. Uh, ooh, I... I didn't talk about this one, but I really do like, you know, the mix of the yeast and the Nelson in Cause for Paws. Mm-hmm. We get all the nice uh, Belgian Saison yeast, uh, slightly banana, green apple, um, a little fruity esters, but then it crisps up nicely with that dry hopping, so it finishes almost more like a pale ale. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm going to agree with that. Yeah, this is very nice. It's been very popular here, too, because it's a way to make the Belgian Saison approachable to more of the IPA and American lager drinkers. Um, I have a partial fondness for Saisons, but uh, they don't really move all that well, typically. Um, a lot of the, our customers don't like to go for the more like botanical, herbal, fruity stuff. It's more of just, you know, they want the clean and crisp beer that'll get the job done. Uh, but this one has been uh, really well received, and uh, people drink it by the mug. Which is a little dangerous because it's almost eight percent alcohol. Is it? But, <laughs> oh, <geez>. Yeah. <laughs> but I gotta give a shout out to uh, Funkworks in Fort Collins. I love those guys specifically, the Tropic King, and this to me tastes a lot like their Tropic King Imperial Saison, just dry hop with Nelson Sauvin, which again is one of my favorite hops of all time. So I kind of feel it was custom made for me. One of the questions I hate the most uh, bartending here at Highbrow is people come in and they ask, "What's your favorite?" And I'm like, well, I built that list. I drink everything up there. If I don't like it, we don't serve it here. So I can stand behind 100% of everything we pour. 
But right now we have uh, this one that I, I really do like, and then we also have the Blood Guardian Blood Orange Imperial IPA from Verboten Brewing in Loveland, and that's probably one of my favorite beers that they do, and everything they do is excellent, so that's saying something. They have been killing it. Have you had Grow Old with you from them? I did. I also had the iced version of it. When yes. they removed the water, it was 18.3% alcohol, which is a little crazy go nuts. <laughs> I totally thought that was uh, not legal. Uh, it is. It's just not categorized as beer. Um, ah, so it's so they it's, just have to. It's license? legal to make, but it's just technically categorized as a malt liquor. Okay. Okay. But it's perfectly legal to like produce stuff all the way up to like thirty-five or forty percent alcohol as a brewer. It just doesn't fall under the beer category. Do they have to change their license? I actually haven't asked. Nope. Uh, you don't have to change your license. Uh, the license just restricts what ingredients you can brew with, like your method of brewing. So if you have a brewer's license, everything has to be grain-based. Uh -huh. If you have a fitness license, everything has to be fruit-based. Um, and so cider in Colorado falls under the Vintner license, as does mead. But mead is kind of weirder because honey is categorized in the FDA as raw meat. What? <laughs> I mean, Fun it's, fact. Yeah. It, I, I understand that it is can be dangerous if done wrong slash given to a child under two. Well, but yeah, I mean, the underage consuming is a thing, but it's basically honey and, and water and then patients. Oh, I just mean like honey itself is oh, dangerous for yeah. toddlers. Yeah, you have, to, you have to wait to give honey to children. You can't give it to a baby because there's, there's a chance that it could be infected with bacteria that they won't survive. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It's botulism, actually. Oh, oh boy. Did you know that? <laughs> I think I might have heard something of that before, but... Yeah, and then, um, spiritus license is anything that is, uh, distilled. So. Okay, so I had heard that it was technically distilling when they shave the, the ice off. Potentially? I mean, like, see how the argument could be made, but I think it has to do more with, like, the equipment they use. Cool. Because let's let's make ice box. Yeah, it, it doesn't really like change anything to ice a, a beer, or ice a cider, or ice a wine. You're just removing water from it, so you're not actually like distilling up the the beer into a beer schnapps or distilling up the cider into a scrumpy. So okay, basically okay. using what you have. I know it accidentally happened. I shouldn't say the brewery I was at, um, but it accidentally happened that a keg froze because it was outside for some reason. Did it explode? It did not. It did not. Interesting. Robust it, keg. Yeah, so they shaved that ice off because it, you know, it's going to float to the top, the water, and they made an imperial blueberry wheat. Apparently it was awesome. I did not get to try it at the time, but I was trying to push them to do it again and I accidentally <laughs> leave something outside. <laughs> impressed me that it didn't explode. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how exactly. Because it must not have frozen the whole way. It must have frozen just like just a the top. Bit. Yeah. Yeah, maybe maybe I ask again. Just like increase the pressure by a ton. That would have been interesting to like. How did you get, how would you get the ice out of it though? I don't know how they did it. <laughs> they could have taken the cylinder out, I suppose. I mean, maybe they like broke, got a way to like transfer all the liquid underneath the ice and just left the ice in the keg. Oh, that's probably right. That's probably right. I just don't know how you get through the ice because ice would be on the top. 
I mean, if the cylinder's going all the way down through yeah. the keg, maybe they, they had access yeah, to a little. And they just weren't willing to wait for it to thaw. I don't know. But I want I want to drink those beers. I <laughs> want people to freeze more things. <laughs> yeah, you haven't seen a lot of ice beers around, but for sure there was uh, a cidery on the western slope that specialized in doing ice ciders, but they no longer exist, unfortunately. Oh, no. COVID? I don't know. I, I think they did, like, close during 2020, but it might have been right before that as well. Uh, no idea. So, I I was talking to you the other day about um, you guys have 30 taps, and you keep styles consistently on specific taps, right? Uh, yeah, to a certain degree. Um, like, we have sour beers that are always on the sour lines, because that's something that's hard to get out of line sometimes. Uh, tap number one is a nitro tap and that's just built in that way. So that will always be a nitro. And then yeah we have um, certain taps we use for like IPAs and lagers and red ales and wheats and stuff like that but uh, the actual style of beer varies as long as it's you know broadly within that category. Right. So for example our amber ale line will have a nice clean American amber on there one week the next week it'll be an Irish red ale, then it will be a German alt beer, then it will be, you know, an ESB. But something that is always going to be in the right the middle ground in the malt hops range that can pass is just, you know, a general amber to anybody. Because we get a lot of people come in there like, what do you have that's like an amber? What do you have that's lagered? And then we can always kind of point them to these lines and be like, hey, well, whatever we have on this is going to be similar to what you're looking for. And typically we'll have a couple different options. Yeah, honestly, um, I was reading something about having too many taps. There's a place in Iowa that had like 250, and they got out of control. Like, it was a full job from with multiple people managing which kegs were where, and which ones were going on next, and it just, the I owner uh, slightly regretted it. That's, that's so much. We picked 30 because it was enough to have good variety, but enough to be feasible, and you don't have to have a ridiculous cooler. Um, we really like our cooler. You know, the 250 square foot custom built, um, and it's big enough that we can have all 30 kegs in a row, not double stacked. We have about six feet of lead on each of the lines too, so it's really easy to move them around and get into there to clean them in between and everything. And um, yeah, our, uh, my co-owner. Rob uh, actually works for Premier Draft Services as well, and you know, having a owner who works as a professional beer line cleaner, we can claim we have the cleanest beer system in Colorado because we get it fully clean every week. And he loves it. You know, he compares it to the coolers of all these other breweries and bars and restaurants that he goes to, where everything's double stacked and yeah. you got a drop cellar and you got maybe about eighteen inches of line at best, so you have to uncouple a bunch of other stuff just to get to where you need to work. So ours is uh, pretty easy to maintain, which is definitely one of the things we we're going for opening this place. And so we wanted to follow the uh, kiss mentality, and uh, you know make it, make it everything as uh, <laughs> easy to maintain and going forward as possible. Yeah. Uh, so one of the he was cleaning uh, Wiley Ridge Spring while I was there, and uh, I did disentangle and label all of the lines to make his day just a little bit better 
I'm sure he appreciated it because he does not get such service for most of the accounts that he has from what he has told me. I mean, it is so easy if you if you get yourself a rat's nest uh, to just leave it that way and just move the kegs around so that you can, you know, <laughs> connect them, but... Uh, well, eventually it's going to come back to bite you, though. So it's better to just, you know, deal with it as it is and untangle everything and, you know, keep it yeah. moving forward. But I had him train me, so now I am also able to clean beer lines and Nice. I'm even going to get that certification now that the Cicero program has added a bunch of sub-certifications. One of them is draft line maintenance. I didn't know that. So, yeah. So now they have uh, sub-certifications for regional beer styles, American, English, Belgian, German, um, as well as subcategories such as IPAs and uh, wild ales and then the, the beer line cleaning and maintenance. So I figure between the two of us, we should be able to get all of them. Uh, we did have a little bit of argument over who's going to get what, because we both wanted German, and we both wanted Belgian, and we both wanted American, and neither of us wanted English. <laughs> yeah, I, I honestly haven't studied English as much, which is weird because it's going to be easier since everything is in the language that I speak, mm -hmm. and it is not in Belgian Germany. <laughs> English beer is a hard sell for a lot of American drinkers, uh, especially the traditional with like cask and everything. Um, people either want something that's really hoppy and crisp, or they want something that's really dark and heavy. And uh, English beer styles on the whole don't offer a lot of that. I mean, you have like Guinness and Irish stouts and everything like that, which do tend to be a little darker, but if you have like an English brown, an English porter, it's going to be more similar to almost like a German black lager or an American black ale. I love uh, black lagers. And they tend to be uh, more malt forward, not very crisp, kind of sweet and lingering. You get you know, tobacco and roasted meat and licorice flavors off of their malts, uh, which does not really sound appealing to a lot of the American drinkers, but we've been doing our part to push them and you know, we have some really good uh, English-focused breweries in this state that are doing real, really good stuff. And while we have not found the real estate to install a beer engine of our own to serve cask yet, it's something I've always been curious about and uh, open to carrying in the future. It's just a very niche market. Whoa, okay. I didn't even think of that. Because we have Hogshead down in Denver. They're the premier one in the state. They're really well known for doing their English... Uh, they do most of their beers both on normal keg and cask, so you could pick which version you want to do it. So even if you know you don't want your beer warm and flat, although traditionally before, like 150 years ago, that was the way all beer was, right. you can still get it kind of Americanized where it's cold and with the CO2. Uh, we had one in Fort Collins until recently called McClellan's that was also known oh, for cask. Yes. Uh, however, they have gone under new ownership. Uh, rebranded as Mythmaker Brewing it is really? the, one of the brewers from Black Bottle, along with uh, Jet Bar, the, one of the bar managers from Max Line Brewing, threw in together, and they should be opening in uh, a month or two, God willing. You know, everything is being kind of pushed back right now with licensing and everything, but hopefully they'll be able to open. They did say they are going to get rid of their cask focus, oh. um, so they'll be pivoting away from the old McClellan's model. Uh, but I'm excited to see what they do. Yeah, that'll be fun. Verboten is going to have a new one right across the street from them soon as well, called Sky Bear Brewing. Uh, apparently they'll have a full kitchen. 
um, be a restaurant. But on the other side of Verboten itself, they are getting a fried chicken restaurant, which as a brewery <laughs> with no kitchen of their own, I can see becoming very useful, although it may impact their uh, food truck rotation. Yes, fair. Um, and I should, I should clarify, Verboten means forbidden. Mm-hmm. And they're making reference to Reinheitsgebot, which is beer priority, which I'm sure most people have heard at least a little bit about. Um, we'll get into like full I'm gonna read the whole thing like a translated version at some point I'm gonna try I know it's really long <laughs> but I keep you know I Written keep reading monks. yes <laughs> and then enforced by I'm gonna call them princes even though yes yes they're not technically princes they're you know they're the heads of duchies and yeah <laughs> Which, it, it does get interesting in um, Vicebeer, which I talked about in one episode, because obviously Vicebeer is not allowed, because it's wheat, and wheat's not allowed in under Reinheitsgebot. But, <laughs> they make exceptions, they always do. But also, uh, yeast is not one of the four ingredients because when the Heidenheits come out, that's made, right. they did not know what yeast was yet. That's they right. They understand uh, microorganisms and bacterial culture. So. Yeah, I'm glad they do now. And and our next one is definitely a product of that. You want to do that one first? Yeah. Never no, mind. We'll do the other one. I was going to, yeah, it will <laughs> mess up this stout. Okay, so this one's Nitro. Um, remind me which brewery. And so this is Westbound and Downs. That's uh, right. Nitro Oatmeal Stout. Okay. Westbound and Downs is out of uh, Idaho Springs. Um, and I was kind of surprised when they first opened because Tommy Knocker just thoroughly dominates the market up there. And I asked myself, why would a new brewery want to open a few doors down from a well-established brewery that everyone knows um, that is super popular and has a line out the door all the time. And in fact, I found out I had answered my own question, and it was because Tommy Knocker was so busy and had a line out the door all the time that they worked with the owners of Westbound and Down to actually help them to get open to take away some of their business. Oh my god. Because gosh. they were so busy there in that tourist strip that they would have people regularly waiting an hour and a half, two hours for a table, and people would get angry and leave and write nasty reviews. Oh my gosh. So they helped Westbound and Down get open and said, please take some of our business. And they've been doing just that with their own great kitchen, their own wonderful beers. And now they are a little bit closer to home, uh, taking over the old Endo Brewing location in Lafayette. What? Uh, yeah, off of uh, 95th Avenue, North 95th Avenue in Arapahoe. Oh my gosh. Uh, yes. And so I actually just visited that location for the first time yesterday. And they took away about half of the seating that the old Endo Brewing location had had, and they've put their entire production facility there. So they took all of their production out of the Idaho Springs location to make room for more customer seating. And now they're doing all of their production at this Lafayette location. Oh my gosh. And they also put in a pizza kitchen there. That's fantastic. So Lafayette is um, really close to where I grew up, and I did work there for a while nannying. So I know the area really well, and I love Westbound and Down. They've been doing, like, we've gotten some of their sours. They have been legendary. Metaberry, so good. But they're not easy to get. No. They have, like, eight flagships, 
that they have all the time, and everything else is a little tricky to come by. I really like some of the Belgian beers they do, and I've never seen them for sale anywhere. No. Like, it's only available at the brewery in Idaho Springs. And even going to this one uh, in Lafayette yesterday, uh, the majority of what they had was their packaged flagships, like what you could normally find in the liquor store from them. However, they did have one or two specialty stuff. In fact, they had a coconut version of this, of this? exact nitro stout that I tried. This is very nice. And the head retention is great. They also had an imperial version of their hazy IPA, the Juice Caboose. And that was my fiance's favorite. I, yeah. Well before a pack of it. I have only had their sours, honestly. We've carried their Mexican lager before. That was very popular. Their West Coast IPA. Um, and we are about to carry another one of theirs. I don't remember off the top of my head what it is. I think it might be a Colch. Nice. Nice. I should I should also clarify. So Idaho Springs is very small. It's along I-70 on the way to a lot of the ski resorts up in the mountains. So you're kind of pinned in by mountains on both sides. There's not a lot of room for the city to expand. Or is it even a city? Is it technically... It's a city. Okay. Yeah, they're one of the only only <laughs> ones across the uh, I-70 corridor that have two exits. So <laughs> they're actually a little bit larger along that strip. Uh, it's, a, yeah, it's an old gold mining town. Um, they do a bunch of like gold mine tours. Uh, there's a little road that goes up behind them that attaches Idaho Springs all the way to Allen's Park, uh, south of Estes. And that's a really cool road. You go through some old uh, ghost mining towns. And there's a little private disc golf course up there called uh, Ghost Town Disc Golf, uh, <laughs> where you're actually throwing discs along an old gold claim, and it's a super cool place. Uh, they did have kind of a uh, Blair Witch Project style uh, decoration going on where they had yes. like, hay, hay dolls in the trees and stuff like that where you're shooting, which was a little bit spooky, but it was gorgeous land, a uh, really cool place to go and throw discs if you're into disc golf. That is awesome. I love it. And I'm, I'm so excited for their future. Uh, nitro makes it so smooth. They're really easy drinking. The oats also give it a little bit more softness. We actually have a dry hop oat lager on right now from Cerebral Brewing down in Denver. Uh, they're inhabited form, which has also been quite popular, but it caught a lot of people off guard because uh, making a lager with oats is a lot more pillowy and less crisp than you normally get from German lagers. But, uh, I'm into yeah, it. Quite good. I'm into it. Oh, I should say, I did did do a tiny bit of research on an oatmeal stout. Um, so <laughs> it was apparently originally an invalid stout. So they were making these healthy beers that they were marketing to people who were sick or elderly, or they even had one for nursing mothers that was really low alcohol. And this was supposed to be just like, yeah, you're going to get your liquid meal in and feel good about you know what you're drinking because you've you've got the oats in there <laughs> makes sense a lot of the beer styles have been designed to replace uh food you know doppelbach is often referred to as the lenten loophole lager or liquid bread with the monks invented to uh, be able to drink during lent and other fasting times and not break their fast but still not be starving but beer <laughs> i mean i i will say the first one i had that really felt like a meal was guinness and I didn't even realize till I finished it. 
The stout is actually a subset of porter. Um, stout is shorthand for strong porter. And it wasn't until Guinness became super popular that it became its own term and people ended up differentiating it completely from porter. But a stout is in fact a subset of porter. Yeah, I had heard that in the beginning they called 20% of their beer uh, porter and 80% of their beer they labeled stout. But I also didn't realize how many big things they're responsible for. Like, one of their brewers contributed hugely to economics because he was trying to go through, uh, like, statistically what people liked and what went well in brewing and keep track of what was going on. And so he published a paper under the name Student. But they, they've they been responsible for a couple things that like revolutionized the industry. Absolutely. Um, they were some of the first ones to barrel age beer, uh, partnering with all the Scotch distilleries there. Um, all the whiskey distilleries in England, or in Ireland, I should say, not the Scotch distilleries in Scotland. Um, and yeah, they are the first ones to really start shipping it all over the world. Um, they kind of came into their own around the same time that uh, we were moving into uh, consistently stable packaging methods, and you could actually ship beer across the ocean without it spoiling, uh, which is something I'm sure the people that invented the IPA wished they had come up with about 100 or 200 years earlier. Yeah, apparently a lot of those, uh, the bungs would just pop in the middle of the voyage because it got too warm mm -hmm. below decks. Yep, and the yeast was still alive, just yeah. turning that yeah. sugar <laughs> and alcohol, creating carbonation as the byproduct. And and apparently, you know, they had some serious hop residue for the for the yeast to, to have access to too. <laughs> that's that's really interesting to me. Like, and, and obviously kegs today, we've got them, they're metal, they're sealed, not going to pop, but man, what, like, how much loss happened through these breweries trying to send stuff? Well, that was where the spruce beer ended up coming from, too, is they went and they met uh, Native Americans in the colonies, and they were all suffering from scurvy in the wintertime. And they said, well, you, you guys aren't eating any, like, fresh fruit or anything. How would you not have scurvy? And the Native American chieftain was like, oh, well, we brew tea out of spruce. And we chew spruce tips. And it's got enough vitamin C that it will keep you ill. You, you still will have scurvy, but you will not die. You know, it's enough yeah. to keep you from dying. And so they took that back and then ended up starting doing, like, the spruce IPAs where they would send that on the voyages to India and it actually helped stave off uh, scurvy. Yeah, yeah, which is interesting to me. I've been looking into that. Like, uh, there's there's definitely the captain's logs, which I'm surprised at how many survived these captain's logs. First of all, you have a captain that is literate. And and second of all, like, somebody kept it and it, and it survived. You well, know. I think that's due to... Um... Uh, capitalism in a lot of ways, that these logs were required by the investors that would put money into these journeys, and it would actually not only be just the log of what happened, but it would be the logistics of what you were trading for, and you know, what you brought with you, and what you took aboard, and that was actually how you would balance the ledgers when you got back to Europe, and you'd give it to your investors and be like, here's what I did, here's the what went out, here's what came in. So, 
That yeah, that does make sense. Because basically, if you lose your captain's log, then you have no way to prove to your investors what money you made, and they would just tag your eye for it. Well, you know, those investors for that, I can't remember the name of the captain, but um, the the ship that got stuck during the winter, when the, like, river froze over, and first... Oh, way up in, like, North Canada? Like yeah, yeah, Channel. yeah, the one you're talking about, like... It wasn't Cook, was it? Uh, see, I think Cook was later, but... Bird. Admiral Bird. Was that might be Bird, right. Bird, B-Y-R-D? That might be right. Yeah. I, I can pull it up. Um, but yeah, he, he said something like 10 sailors were okay enough to take care of the other 100 sailors who were so sick that they couldn't, you know, function. I was like, oh my gosh. (laughs) But, like, looking into that, I, I mean, we'll talk about it more when we do, like, a spruce specific episode. I've been trying to figure out when exactly they were adding the spruce tips and how much the cell walls of the spruce protected you know the vitamin C so that it would still be viable when they drank it which is tricky because boiling points could denature depending on where they, like, whether they use the branches or just the tips, and whether they put the tips in after fermentation or not. But, like you said, it's it's in multiple captain's logs. It'll be interesting to go into. Sorry, I got overzealous for this one because I'm really excited. <laughs> uh, and I, I tried to do it before we did oatmeal stout. But this one's called Small Trekker. And it's from Purpose in Fort Collins. And uh, Peter Buchard, who started at Rodenbach, then went to New Belgium, started their sour program, really is responsible for making sours a thing in this country. And I'm so grateful. And uh, when he left New Belgium, he did his smaller project with Purpose. So Small Trekker is one of his beers. And... It means pucker face in Flemish, he told me. <laughs> this is uh, number 009 in the series. Um, I have had about eight or nine in the series. I believe it goes all the way up to 60 now. I think you're um, right. Uh, so he releases a bunch of these, and they're all barrel-aged uh, blended sours. So he will use uh, spontaneous fermentation and often open fermentation in these, just take wild yeast out of the air. And he'll get uh, flavors that you can't really guess or estimate, it's just the roll of the dice. And he'll taste them all and decide which ones he thinks go well together, and he'll blend three to five, typically, into one final product. So this is a blend of three to five uh, individual barrel-aged sours that have been combined into a final product. I did not know he was blending, and I also didn't know he was open fermenting. He is a certified Flemish barrel master. Um, He's actually one of the top names in the U.S. for this, and even in Europe. Um, Really, really a master at his craft. Um, And now's a great time to go and visit him while he's there, because I have heard, through the grapevine, again, not confirmed, secondhand bartender knowledge, uh, that he and his wife are looking to retire. 
Uh, yes, I heard that too. Purpose itself will stay and endure. Um, so I hope that he's found a worthy successor and apprentice to take over and continue his legacy. I'm sure he'll still be there as a consultant or a I, assistant brewer or blender or something like that. I would be surprised if he ever fully, fully retired because this is his passion, not not his job. Mm-hmm. You know? I, like but I know he and his wife want to go do some world travel, so they, they need to be in a position that they can leave for a couple months and go back to Belgium and go to some other places and I could see him going on to just be a beer archaeologist a la Avery oh or a Dogfish <laughs> Head where he just spends his time traveling the world and bringing back fun ingredients and recipes for them to make there on purpose. That'd be wonderful. I just hope he stays semi-local so I can talk to him <laughs> when he comes back. Whew. This is one of my favorite beers to pour. I love the smell of it. I like drinking it too, but uh, can't have too much. Um, it is very acidic. Yes. Uh, it is a jaw tingler. Small trekker is definitely an accurate description for it. I definitely feel it. Yeah, mm-hmm. in the back of <laughs> the jaw. Yeah, it tastes uh, almost a slightly more intense version of Duchesse de Bourgogne. Yeah, um, yeah, that's a little darker, uh, a little higher acidity, um, about the same on the barrel notes. And it's it's unique. I mean, I I don't think I've whatever he blended. I don't think I've tasted anything on on the same notes as this one. Yeah, this is uh, one of my favorites of the one that I've had. Um, I did really like number six, and then the most recent one we had before this was the thirty eight which was quite good. It was a little bit lighter, a little bit more fruity. Uh, This one is just tons of wood, tons of acid. uh, Great flavor. I mean, they all have a great flavor, but this one is really deep and earthy and woody. Yeah, I I agree. I think we, we took pictures of our favorite. I think three was in there. Something else in the 30s. We also are privileged to have his uppercut barley wine on right now, which was his submission to uh, Big Beers. Uh, Big Beers, Belgians, and Barley Wines in Breckenridge, which unfortunately was not held in person this year again. Um, I'm hoping that 2022 will be the uh, year of the return of the beer festivals. I've already got my tickets to Collab Fest April 2nd, uh, so I'm hoping that kicks off a full season of beer festivals uh, pre-COVID style. I'm so ready, and I can tell you... Wildworks is definitely planning on doing our festival in in June. In person. Excellent. <laughs> and that's the Invitational, right? The Invitational. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry. Invitational, not festival. And I am so excited. And that's GABF. Oh. And we, we love those big festivals because it just brings beer, more beer tourists to the area. We meet a lot of people we would not have met otherwise. Um, CBC and GABF week are some of the most fun weeks to go around because you meet people from all over the world. Um, we did a World of Belgian Beers tasting course uh, two yes, years ago at, at Bruce. Yes. And the table next to us was a group from Mockingbird Brewing Company out of Seoul, South Korea. And that was a lot of fun talking with them about their whole craft beer scene that's been up and coming. Oh, so, that's cool. Mm-hmm. 
I've I've seen one brewery consistently out of Tokyo too. Uh, Hitachi no Nest. Have you seen their their stuff? I don't know if I've it's them. I need to. It's an owl on their label. Yes. Yes. No, I have seen them. And then uh, there is also a brewery in Tokyo that is making maca IPAs, and they're bright green. They look like swamp water, but they're maca green tea infused IPAs, and I had the chance to try a couple of those. And they were good. Good. <laughs> I also had a chance to try uh, a few beers from Lucky Cat Brewing, which is out of. It's out of China. It's either Beijing or Shanghai. But that was really cool to try some Chinese beers as well, other than Sing Tao, which is the only one that I had had before. Yeah, yeah, same here. And I don't remember how I felt about it, actually. But I cannot wait for the craft beer scene to really expand. And for these, these other countries to really, you know, add their own unique notes to like what we're already doing and maybe add some styles or some you know why why shouldn't the beer scene differentiate it's gonna be it can only get better absolutely yeah we're definitely uh on the up and up and you know the sky's the limit when it comes to different styles and interpretations of things that you can do with beer um, there's really just very little rules. We still do have the right heights come up, but that's only upheld by breweries that have been open more than 100 years, and they're very <laughs> proud of it. Um, so yeah, just a, a little bit of everything, and as long as we just continue with the vibe we're currently doing where everyone supports everyone else, and we collaborate, and we work together, and we let people take all these little niche specialties, that there just will be something for everyone, and, you know, everything someone so I'm one of those lucky few that appreciate everything in beer so just happy as a clam to go to all these little places all the time and try all these new and exciting things that they've been pumping out that sounds fun yeah <laughs> this has been Lauren's porn episode of novice's guide to beer styles and we were at highbrow tap house of course in Greeley if you want to find us, check us out on social media. And thank you, Ben, so much for <laughs> helping me with this. <laughs> My pleasure. It was uh, great talking to you, and uh, look forward to raising many more glasses with you in the future. Yeah, I, I definitely had to feature this place, and anybody who ends up nearby should really check it out.